Matt threw me off when he sat down. I thought, whoops, I went up too early <laughs> in regards to that. Thank you for all the kind wishes and notes. Um, we are feeling better. Um, it was a tiresome time. Although I'm not sure about the people who this morning said, oh, the tired lasts forever. I thought, that's not very encouraging. <laughs> But that was probably the worst of it. I don't even have a T-shirt to show for my son going to Newfoundland. All I got was COVID. Um, <clears throat> could have at least brought me a T-shirt that said that, but he didn't. Uh, but anyhow, Mr. Montgomery asked if I'd be okay, and I said, if I get tired, I'll grab the stool and I'll sit on it and preach from there for a little bit. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, it's fun. Anyhow, um, this evening, uh, we're going to spend some time talking about money. Um, as many of you know, I, I did personal finance for people for many years, uh, over 20, and I, I still consult in that area. So I'm not a financial planner, um, but we're going to talk about theology of money, and we're going to have some very practical stuff about building budgets. Uh, so if you have young people, please bring them out. And uh, we're going to spend, I thought four weeks, it's looking like five weeks. Uh, <laughs> I could spend longer, but uh, we'll really tackle that subject, both from a practical standpoint of view and from a biblical standpoint of view. But before getting back into our text, it's been a few weeks since we've been there, uh, so a bit of a review is probably warranted at this point. First, to remember the audience to whom was before the Lord when he was on the mountain, he was speaking. It was made up of the apostles, of course, and there would be disciples, those that were following Christ at this point. There certainly would have been those curious onlookers, and then there would be those who hated Christ that were there for other reasons and just watching the goings-on of the events. The former group consisted mainly of the religious elites of the day, so the scribes, Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. Second reminder is that what was being presented as Judaism in the day was actually not real Yahweh worship. It wasn't orthodox. Mainstream priests and scribes and Pharisees were not worshiping the true God. They were actually presenting an apostate religion. If I may use the term loosely, a different gospel. The Old Testament and the prophets who were bearers of the good news continually pointed people back to God and how they could have a relationship with Him. As a matter of fact, that was the reason for John the Baptist, our last Old Testament prophet, as he came to call the people to repentance, back to true Yahweh worship. Much of the nation had abandoned God and had abandoned the worship of the true God. Third, Matthew 5 concludes with six illustrations connected by one thought. That thought was this, that Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to destroy the law, not to do away with the law. And we need to remember that the law itself reflects the character of God, our un changing God. Theologians will point to his unchanging character as the reason why the moral law is still in existence today. The very fact that the moral law reflects the character of God. Plus the fact that much of the moral law predates the giving of the Mosaic law. And that same moral law is referred to or reiterated almost in its entirety, again, with inside the confines of the New Testament. Fourth, before the six illustrations, we read this in verse 20. 
But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, for for clarification, let's remember that those religious leaders that he's referring to aren't making it to the kingdom of heaven either. See, the required righteousness to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven was to be greater. It had to be better than that of the scribes and Pharisees. How discouraging. If our best doesn't make the cut, what about me, the the average Jew? How do I ever stand a chance? Set that aside. We'll come back to that. Last, we talked about Paul in Galatians 6.2. He states that the followers of Christ now serve a different law. They serve the law of Christ. That law was revealed to us in an exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders. Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? That was in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34, 34 through 40. And Jesus' answer is somewhat unexpected. He doesn't quote one of the Ten Commandments. Rather, he expresses the intent of the law, the spirit of the law, and he does that with two statements, starting in verse 37. He said to him, and he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In Matthew 5, Jesus reinterprets not the law, but the interpretations of the law. Jesus' response is to the reinterpretations that had become the basis for the apostate religion that was preached in, Jew, in Israel at that time. Last time together, we tackled the issue of anger. This week, we're going to look at two illustrations linked by the theme of adultery. Let's just open in prayer. Father, we thank you for your love and your goodness in our lives. We thank you that we can gather today and to spend some time in your word. Father, help us to push aside all the thoughts and concerns of life either from the past week or from the, for the week to come, just to focus on your word, open our minds and our hearts to engage in your word, and that it might work in our lives to change us and to mold us and to more make us into the image of Jesus Christ. In your son's name we ask. Amen. Okay, if you have your Bibles with me, with you, I have mine with me, if you have yours with you, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at five verses this morning, verses 27 through 32. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 32, and here Jesus opens up with a very familiar formula. You have heard, but I say, look at verse 27, <clears throat> you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I think it paid dividends for us to understand the culture of the day. Uh, What were the general moral conditions during the first century? I think that would be helpful. So in both the Greek and Roman civilization, 
prostitution was common. In some centers, it was prominent. Local temples participated in religious prostitution with either temple servants or priestesses. And I also think for the nation of Israel, John 8 gives us insight into the moral context of the nation at that time, specifically regarding adultery. So I'm going to read a couple of verses from John chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. And he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. <clears throat> Sorry. Much can be learned from these two verses. Just two verses. Okay, she was caught in the act of adultery. Any definition I know would require a partner. Where's the partner? Where's the, where's the man? See, that old boys club has been around for a very long time. And unfortunately, the treatment of women in the first century is unfairly attached to biblical Christianity and to the worship of Yahweh. See, Matthew 5.27 is a direct quote from Deuteronomy 5.18. And as we see in John 8, the religious leaders only adhered to the commandment when it suited their purposes. See, the Talmud, which is a book of Jewish writings, reveals to us the corruption of God's view of woman. See, God's intent was for a man to have a helpmate. And now, a woman had grown to only be, have a status a little higher than that of a slave. She was considered mere property of her husband. Some interpretations stated in the Talmud that only a married woman could, emit, could commit adultery, letting the man off the hook completely. God's ideal had been corrupted and reinterpreted to fulfill the pleasure of men. See, in the Jewish mind, adultery was not about purity. Adultery was about property. It was a property issue for the Jewish mindset, where God had always intended it to be a purity issue. And Jesus clarifies this, moving adultery from the realm of property to purity. Verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, adultery is not just a physical action, but it's a heart attitude beginning long before the action ever occurs. And Jesus challenges the general, their general view of woman. See, a woman was not to be objectified. Strangely, our society today tries to have it both ways. But to objectify a woman is sin. Women are not property. Wives are not property. Jesus' Jesus's reinterpretation of their interpretation fits very well with the verse from Deuteronomy chapter 5. If you want, you can turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 21 we're smack dab in the middle of the Ten Commandments, and here's what we read in verse 21. You must not covet your neighbor's wife. You must not covet your neighbor's house or land, male or female servant, ox or donkey, 
or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. See, Moses is clear here. He's clear to separate the neighbor's wife so she isn't confused with property. The confusion by some results in a misunderstanding. And some of that misunderstanding comes from how the Jewish mindset interpreted Genesis 3.16. Genesis 3.16, and I'll read that in a minute, is not a biblical command for men to dominate rule to dominate women, nor is it a command for men to rule over their wives. Faulty understanding of this verse has created all kinds of issues. Let me read the latter part of 3.16 from Genesis, first in how the ESV and the NLT translate it. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. So their idea there is that the wife then will want to sort of usurp the husband's authority in what was set out in creation, and he will rule over her. Or the CSB, the, the Christian Standard Bible, approaches it a little bit differently. Genesis 3.16b says, Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. The concept behind the rendering of that one is that the wife will sort of idolize her husband, and, and the husband's going to sort of just rule over her. There are a few viable interpretations that come from verse 16. But the intent, the intent of both, I believe, is the same. That the fall changed everything. One commentator stated it this way. The most, most basic and straightforward understanding of this verse is that a woman and a man would now have ongoing conflict in contrast to the ideal conditions in the Garden of Eden and the harmony between Adam and Eve, their relationship from that point forward would include struggle. I believe that's what Genesis 3.16 says. One thing that we can agree on is nowhere is this verse endorsing domination over a wife or any woman. Such an interpretation guts the whole concept of a helpmate set down in Genesis and it guts the whole concept from the New Testament of mutual submission and a man loving a wife as Christ loved the church. So how does Scripture tell us to treat each other in general? Well, we can go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers... Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. In normal life, in normal surroundings, men are usually quite protective of other mothers, right? Right? Somebody says something about your mother, you know, we're ready to put up the dukes. Same thing is with our sisters. We're very protective of our sisters. What, Timothy, what Paul is saying to Timothy here is that same protection, that same love, and how you treat mom with purity, and how you would treat your sister with purity, is how you're to treat men and women in the church. 
That's how we're to treat us as a spiritual family. So you become my mother, depending on your age, or my sister. I have more sisters than mothers now. And you treat them with purity. That's first what we're called to, how we're called to treat each other. Then in 1 Peter 3, 7, we read this, more specifically towards husbands. <clears throat> Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Men are called to live in knowledge. So who is your wife? What are her likes? What are her dislikes? What brings her to life? What makes her feel alive? The color blue, she likes beaches, and she likes to garden, just so you know. Do you value her for who she is, what she brings to the relationship? Then there's a nod by Peter given to the gender differences. Yes, men are stronger usually, but that is not to be exploited, but to be honored, and you're to cherish her. You're to, you're to treat her with specialness. Why? Well, like you, they are a child of the kingdom of God. Jesus isn't done as he continues to explain what it means to live as part of this kingdom, his kingdom. See, the word lust here denotes the idea of looking upon someone with a longing, a, a desire. In life, people will notice other attractive people. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's normal. It's not sinful. Most men will tell you their wife caught their eye at some point. Right? I hope so. <clears throat> they were attracted to them somehow. Somewhere along the line, you glanced over and you went, I think I'd like to get to know them a little bit better. I mean, we've, that's just normal. That's how it works. The glance is not the issue. It's the gaze. It's the longing desire to act inappropriately that causes the issue. That's exactly what got King David in trouble. Not that he noticed Bathsheba, but he sat there and he gazed and he mulled it over and he played it over and over again in his heart. R.T. France stated this, Jesus' intention is therefore not to prohibit natural sexual attraction, but the deliberate harboring of desire, for, of desire for an illicit relationship. Unfaithfulness and impurity are always wrong. Married or single, it doesn't matter. These verses, while written to men, are equally and can equally be applied to women. Purity is just not a male thing. See, the marriage relationship is sacred. It's the building block of society, despite what our society likes to think. The institution allows for the fulfillment of an intimate relationship between one man and one woman. 
and if God blesses the raising of children. See, marriage brings together two people to work together, to build a life together, a home together, to mutually support one another as each looks to fulfill goals and dreams that the Lord may have set upon their hearts. Marriage is an illustration of the relationship between man and God and is alluded to many times in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, marriage is used as an illustration. Christ as the husband and the church or believers as the bride. There, there is an exclusivity and exclusivity there. I'll get it out. There is an exclusivity there and a bond in marriage that can be so sweet and so rich. And Jesus is aware lust can greatly damage that relationship. Jesus is aware that it can loosen the bonds and infringe on the exclusivity of the relationship. That's why pornography is so damaging. It's damaging to relationships because it takes away from that. And it's, it, and it's just not men who watch pornography or view it. 2015 stats indicate 24% of women view pornography regularly and 57% of men. The number of men has remained constant through the years. A recent survey showed, though, in Canada, 30% of women view pornography, pornography regularly. And the fallout of the, the lustful behavior goes beyond just breaking the commandment. See, the promise of porn is empty and it's deceitful. Men who participate in this very addictive sin report a greater dissatisfaction with their love life, often feel lonelier, more insecure, and dissatisfied with their personal appearance, according to the Institute of Family Studies out of Virginia. Stats also reveal to us women are as likely to initiate an affair now as men. Pornography grosses worldwide a revenue of over $97 billion. Covenant Eyes in the States did a survey. They found, and this is a general survey of Christian, but they found that one in five youth pastors and one in seven senior pastors watch it regularly. In the general Christian population, self-identified Christian men, 64% view pornography. 15% of women view it regularly. Adultery of the heart was a serious issue in the first century. Purity of the mind had been missed. Purity continues to be an issue and a growing issue in our day. So concerning. Look at, look, look at the radical suggestions made by Christ in verses 29 and 30. Look at these suggestions to combat the problem. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away or cast it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. That imagery is vivid. A matter of fact, the, the, the concept of throw it away 
in these verses comes from a description of casting a fish net. So when they used to cast their fish nets, round nets weighted on the outside of the net so that it would sink down and engulf whatever was below it. Why such hyperbole? Well, Jesus is trying to drive home the point of the seriousness of purity. Drastic sins call for drastic measures. Like R.T. France again when he said this, Thus the eye which should keep us from stumbling can in fact trip us up. So ridding ourselves of our lusts may involve some extreme sacrifices, which may include severing relationships and may include the renunciation of some favorite activities. I don't want to be legalistic here. How you control your eye is going to be different from how somebody else may control their eyes. Some of you may require counseling. But the point is, do whatever it takes. No half measures. There's two key points here. Don't be short-sighted. There's more to life than the here and now. There's all of eternity. The second point is, sin is destructive and must not be pampered, but put to death. Colossians 3.5 says this, So put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with the sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Now, unfortunately, in a lot of churches at this point, pastors, for some reason, they, get, they let off men. They change course. They move away from the text at this point, and they shift to a discussion on modesty and women's dress. Lost in the translation is the principle that anywhere modesty is addressed in a woman, it, in principle, equally applies to a man. Also lost in the, is the fact that Jesus doesn't go there in the text. Now, that's not to say that Jesus doesn't believe in modesty. He does. And note, the Scripture never defines modesty in terms of what may or may not be worn. I know it talks about gold, the adorning of gold. But Scripture uses terms like fitting, proper, respectable, honoring, well-ordered. By purposely not speaking about modesty here, Jesus leaves the onus of not lusting right where it belongs on the person doing the gazing and gawking. In short, Jesus says, do whatever is necessary to deal with your lustful heart. No blame, shift, no blame shifting. If you have that much of a problem controlling your thoughts and your eyes, I would suggest counseling. Too often from the pulpit, these verses have been an excuse to come up with a dress code for woman, helping, supposedly helping man from lusting, when in reality, men need a change of heart. Men need to take responsibility for themselves and not to try to change another person's behavior to control their own behavior. It doesn't work like that. Dress codes do nothing to change a heart. I've learned over the years one thing. 
if I've learned one thing, it's that most believing women know what modest dress is. And as they grow in their faith in Christ and seek to honor Him and seek to grow in their understanding of Christ, they automatically grow in their understanding of modesty. The point here is for you not to control another person's behavior, but that you, through the power of the Spirit that lives in you and through wisdom, learn how to control your own behavior. And Jesus isn't finished. He doesn't let men off the hook very easily here. So corrupt was the religious idea of purity that he goes on to share more on the theme of adultery. Look down to verses 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. See, come the time of Christ, there were two schools of thought regarding divorce. So before we get in those schools of thought, let's go back to where they base it from. They base it from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. And I'm going to read those to, to you. <clears throat> when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because she has he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her in to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. And it doesn't quite mean what you think it means there. We need to have a deeper study on that. For that is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. A few thoughts. Nowhere in the Old Testament is divorce explicitly approved. A more in-depth study would show us the rules of divorce were set out for the protection of woman. See, the Bible is clear. Divorce is not the ideal. Reconciliation is always the most desired outcome. However, you and I are sinful people, and as sinful people, even if one party is willing, divorce still may be the outcome. Our purpose this morning is also not to explore other exceptions or how to deal with someone when they're in an abusive situation, but it's rather to understand why divorce was allowed in the law. So that was the background. And in the New Testament, Christ says this further on in Matthew chapter 19, verses 7 through 9. They said to him, when then did Mo Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another man commits adultery. The issue here again flows out of a misunderstanding from Genesis chapter 3 verse 16. And it flows out of the fact that they had a low view of woman. 
they appear to hold this view that women were cursed so men could get away with a lot. Genesis 3.14, we read this. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. So the serpent is cursed. The curse is, uh, is directed at the serpent, and it's also directed at the ground on verse 17. Genesis 3.17, we read this. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. There's a curse on the, on the ground, and there's a curse on the serpent. Here, sin entered the created world, and it changed everything. God states that things have changed, but he doesn't curse the woman, and he doesn't curse the man. But we must now live with the curse of sin. What does God do for man generic? Well, he promises deliverance. He promises here to send a Messiah one day in the future. Now, by the time we move up to the first century and in the time of Christ, the whole concept of divorce was totally messed up. And as you can imagine, politics has been around a long time. So there was a conservative view, and there was a liberal view on this. The conservative view was held by a rabbi called Shema. Shema's interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 was that the meaning of the word indecency referred to a, a sexual misdemeanor, and it had to be authenticated by a witness. I also find it interesting as we're talking about this that according to the law, the penalty for adultery was to be what? The death penalty for both parties. And there's little evidence in Jewish history that that was ever carried out. Hillel, the liberal scholar, interpreted indecency very broadly. And I mean very broadly. It included such things as if he thought his wife now to be ugly, or at least not as pretty as the new girl around the corner, or if she spoke badly about his mother. I mean, the Talmud even allowed for a wife to be dismissed if she burnt her husband's dinner. There was no need for a court decision. You simply had to go to a rabbi. The husband could initiate it. The wife couldn't. She could, he could go to a rabbi, have a, a certificate signed, and it was done. Out she was. The only stipulation was he had to return the dowry. That was the only stipulation. So, if you were a lenient rabbi, you probably did a pretty good business. How far men have fallen from the helpmate created by God to walk through life with. We're now to the point where the wife was regarded only slightly higher than a slave. And because of the agrarian and type of society, for survival's sake, most women were forced back into remarriage, especially like from the first century back. There weren't other options for them. Jesus, though, here lays the sin at the feet of the religious leaders. 
Look at the problems you have created in, in the treatment of others, in how you treat women. It's your no-fault divorce option that you give to men. And when I mean no fault, I mean no fault for the man. He was given the right to do with whatever he wanted with his property. Why? Well, the religious leaders had misread the law. They had misunderstood God's ideal for marriage and what God intended around purity. The easy divorce for whatever reason, was to indulge their sexual whims. Note, the blame for adultery is laid at the feet of, of the one initiating these ridiculous divorces. It's laid at the feet of the husband. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. The sin is at the husband's feet. See, kingdom living demands purity in heart, purity in mind, and purity in action. See, the bar for righteousness, once again, is set high, higher than you and I could attain. See, Jesus is driving home the point of his message. The kingdom of heaven is not attainable on your own. Citizenship of heaven cannot be earned. You and I must realize our utter bankruptness spiritually before God and come to Him into repentance. That is how we attain citizenship in the kingdom. And then when we do that, we begin to live in the Spirit when we come to Christ, the Spirit enters our lives, and it's the Spirit that works within us that gives us the power and the ability to live pure lives. It doesn't let us off the hook. We have a responsibility to live out the kingdom here on earth, to adopt habits to show we believe what God says, and our lives need to reflect purity of mind, heart, and action that each of us show value to the opposite sex as, God crea- as a God-created being equal in standing before God, treating each other as brothers and sisters in Christ in all purity. See, purity is our responsibility and how we're to treat one another. And we as a church, well, we need to teach our men of all ages that a wife is a gift, is an heir. We need to rid any notion that there's a curse on a woman or that Genesis 3.16 is some sort of command there that we're to rule over her. That concept of rule over is not the same concept as headship. They're different. The rule over part comes out of sin entering our world. Coming to Christ and faith in Christ comes headship. Far too long, there have been elements in the evangelical church that have misused Scripture and, frankly, turned off some of our young women raised in the church. And that should not be so. The church should be the safest place for a woman of any age. It should be the place where she feels the most respected and the most valued. 
Our young women should be able to look at their dads who are believers and followers of in Christ and say, you know what? I want a husband like him because he follows Christ and he treats my mom with respect and love. That's what lay before us. And sometimes the bad rap that we have in our communities of how we treat women are well-earned by how some churches treat women. Roles are, are different, and we're not tackling that today. But we are to respect and to love and to honor and cherish. That's what we're called. We're to treat one another with purity in all that we do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the challenges in it. And Father, we live in a world that is so impure. And the church is guilty of mixing things up at times over the years, maybe from sincerity of heart. I have no idea. But Father, the challenge that lay before us today is to look at Scripture, to understand it, and to live it out. Father, for each man here that's married, we ask that you'll give us the strength and the wisdom to love and to cherish and to value and to live in knowledge with our wives. And Father, as we interact as brothers and sisters in Christ, we ask for purity in mind and heart. Father, we ask for courage for those that are in this building this morning that may struggle with pornography. Courage that they will take steps to find counsel to help them to break the habit that seeks to destroy their lives. Father, when the world looks at the church, when the world looks at Forest Baptist, may they see that we hold a high view of Scripture and a high view of the roles of men and women and a high view of women in general. Father, that, w- that they may see that this is a place that values women and the unique creation and the helpmate that you've created for men. May our sons and daughters see examples of godly men treating woman in purity and in love. May our, 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 our sons understand that. May we understand that how we treat our wives is very much likely how our sons will treat their wives. Father, may we live in such a manner that our daughters will seek out men of God because they've seen it in our life. Father, we thank you for these challenges. And most of all, we thank you that we know that we cannot live this on our own. And that the kingdom of heaven would not be attainable for us if not for your son, Jesus Christ, coming to live, to die on a cross, to rise again, and to freely offer to all those that will come salvation, citizenship in the kingdom. 
We thank you for that this morning. And Father, if anyone is here this morning that is not a citizen of the kingdom, may they reach out to a friend that loves you, to one of the elders here, and desiring to speak to them to know what it means to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.